Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, I am so glad you are here this Tuesday, February 20th. Uh, I really appreciate you and the fact that you tune in. And I hope you will stick with us. It is going to be an important year as we uh, reelect Joe Biden or uh, whomever Mr. Biden might designate should he decide to step aside, which is, I think, highly unlikely. I think it is as likely that he will step aside as Donald Trump will not run uh, for the Republican Party to be the next president. But... If we've learned anything in this crazy, kooky world of ours, it's that sometimes things can surprise us. So um, President Biden is um, allotting a ton of money for clean water infrastructure. I am uh, trying to uh, harass Michael Hawthorne, who's the Trib environmental reporter, get him on the radio to talk about this and what it means and where this money's going to go. Joe Biden, the president who makes our lives better. I'll contrast that with Alabama. Alabama, yeah. The state that gave us Tommy Tuberville, that Alabama. Uh, the Supreme Court there has made a ruling. They've decided that uh, frozen embryos are not a conglomeration of cells. They're a kid. Yep. Uh, all those frozen embryos are kids. You know, this idea that... Um, Knocking down Roe v. Wade was was because it's the kind of thing that should be decided in the states. And then, you know, all of a sudden these laws were passed and there were no exceptions for the life of the mother. There were no exceptions for a, a, a fetus that could not survive. There were no exceptions uh, for anything, anywhere, anytime. And then they started talking about, well, you know, we ought to really take a close look at contraception because, you know, contraception, that's kind of like abortion, isn't it? And at the time of all this nonsense, some of which was happening, some of which was percolating, people said, watch out, those of you who are trying to get pregnant through in vitro fertilization, watch out. Because you are in their crosshairs. And they were right. They were absolutely right. Um, this is going to have a chilling effect. I mean, in Alabama, for sure. But sadly, what we've discovered is that things that start in the red states don't always stay there. So, yeah, we have this, and you could say, oh, you know, these people thought that Tommy Tuberville was a good senator, you know. These people elected as their governor, the woman who used to handle communications for Donald Trump. Alabama. 
is um is really something, isn't it? You know, I used to joke when I was talking to the Courier newsroom reporter from Texas and one of the things that we were talking about was every once in a while in the Texas legislature, somebody says, you know, they, that they want Texas to secede from the United States. And I jokingly said that the rest of the country would probably go along with that as long as they took Florida with them. I'd like to change that statement, if I may. I would like to revisit that statement and alter it. I would like to delete that post and write a new one. Uh, Texas can only secede from the United States if they take Alabama. Not that Florida still isn't out there, but just this morning, just this morning. Remember I told you in the once it looked like Ron DeSantis was crushed in the presidential race and he can't run for governor again. So uh, his power, shall we say, was on the wane. Uh, There were um, some state legislators in Florida who felt that this whole book banning thing had gone too far. And they were writing up bills for the legislature to consider that said that um, that that put some rules down. Like you can only protest one book at a time, not these massive lists. And that you have to have a child in the school system if you're going after a school library. Um, they, they were saying that the whole book banning thing had gone too far and it was a small number of people. Something like 11 people were responsible for the vast majority, hundreds and hundreds of books being banned from Florida schools because they were filling out these forms with information they got from the internet. They don't have kids in the system and they're cutting and pasting. Here are the 50, uh, 150 books that I think should be banned. Well, Even Ron DeSantis has decided that book banning in Florida has gone too far. He has come out in support of these legislative efforts to rein in the number of books a person can challenge and more clearly define standing. Who has the right? To ban a book. If you're going to the school system, to the Board of Education, with a list of books to ban, and you don't have a kid in school, should that be right? People in the far right have been taking advantage of the fact that, you know, it's the Donald Trump rule. There's no law that says I can't, so I will. Well, Ron DeSantis has decided there has been too much book banning by a handful of people in his state. And he is apparently supportive of this legislation that Florida, Florida, is going to be considering that is going to rein in the practice. That is why Alabama... (laughs) In my heart, why Alabama has now joined the state that I most want Texas to take with it when it uh, secedes from the union. Let them. Kiss Texas goodbye. And you know what? 
I think uh, Texas is going to discover pretty quickly that it needs the rest of the country more than the rest of the country needs Texas. I know Joe Biden wouldn't let it happen under his watch. But I wouldn't stand in anybody's way who wanted to let them go. What do you think that would do for the companies like in Austin, Texas? Apple has a huge presence. Most of their education stuff is based in Austin. And uh, they chose Austin as where they were going to build their sort of satellite headquarters. Would uh, Apple stay there if Texas became a different country? And then they'd have to negotiate like agreements with the rest of the United States to do their work? Or would Apple just pick up and leave? Be careful what you wish for, Texas, because there's an awful lot of us that would say, don't let the door hit you on the butt as you leave. That's just me. That is just me. I used to think Austin, Texas, with its progressive leanings, would grow large enough and important enough to influence the rest of the state. But with all of this immigration stuff that Abbott is pulling with the corrupt um, chief legal officer of Texas, Ken Paxton, with I've read reports that um, a lot of the younger folk who were drawn to Austin, Texas for its progressive feel and its support of arts, that a lot of those folks are finding other places to live rather than Austin trying to moderate the rest of the state. It seems like the rest of the the state is doing its best to bring Austin, Texas down to its level. Okay, so we've decided Alabama can leave. By the way, I was one of the newsletters (laughs) One of the newsletters I was reading today um, looked at some of the demographic polling, voter polling in Alabama to see who might have the best chance of uh, going up against the Tuberville and uh, taking that seat back for the Democrats. You're not going to believe this. Um, The polling floated a bunch of different names, you know, people who had been in positions of political power before, um, et cetera, and so forth. But no, the person who um, apparently is um, most likely to be successful if he takes on Tommy Tuberville is the... uh, The current coach. (laughs) Yeah, did you you see that coach? (sighs) The current coach who they love, Nick Saban, who has announced that he is probably going to be leaving his job Nick Saban, in most of the polls, is the strongest candidate to defeat Tommy Tuberville. 
Now, the only good news is that Mr. Saban is apparently a Democrat. So, you know what? Could he be any worse than Tuberville? I don't believe that being a college coach is great preparation for being in the Senate. But then I wouldn't have put Herschel Walker up as a candidate, a man who, by his own admission, suffers from mental illness and has been violent. Steve Garvey in California. Yeah, he played baseball. Let's put him up. You know, the Republican Party doesn't have a real solid track record of picking the best and the brightest. Rather, they pick the most famous because they want somebody that already has name recognition. So what the hell? Let's give them what they want. Let's give them Nick Saban. Now all we have to do is convince him to run. Oh, but you know who isn't going to be um, running for president? Oh, Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin has made the big announcement. I knew this would happen because Manchin, you know, Manchin's been flirting with no labels. No labels has been flirting with Manchin. Manchin, the Republican Democrat clothing, who has been a thorn in Joe Biden's side. Uh, It was not a very well-kept secret that no labels was flirting with him, that he would be just the kind of candidate that they would like to see join the race for president. And, you know, he made this big announcement about how he was going to be traveling the country and talking to people. He was going, getting out there to see if there was enough support for him. And guess what? Here's a real shock. There's not. So he has announced that he is not going to seek the presidency, whether as a Democrat or whether as a no labels or any other shape or form. He's not going to seek the presidency. So um, since he's a Democrat and since it looks like it's going to be Trump and Biden and they couldn't be more different, was Joe Manchin ready to step aside and endorse Joe Biden? Because, you know, that's what Nikki Haley's going to do. Nikki Haley, when she finally throws in the towel, and she has pretty much said that she needs to do percentage-wise better in South Carolina than she did in New Hampshire, and nobody sees that coming. Um, And Nikki Haley is going to find a way to endorse Donald Trump. So Joe Manchin, not going to do a third-party run. Joe Manchin, with a D by his name, is he going to endorse Joe Biden? Well, he joined uh, Caitlin Collins on uh, CNN. Uh, you know what? Just listen for yourself. Listen to this. I always believed that we could, we could uh, legislate through a crisis. We'd come together for a crisis. Well, guess what? We have a crisis. The border is a crisis. And I saw my friends walk away when they were determined to pass a border security. And they were on board three days before that. And with Donald Trump coming as hard as he came at them, they cowered down and walked away. I said, we're not fixing anything in Washington. The sensible, reasonable middle of this country makes up 55 to 60 percent of the population of voting. A tremendous voting block, but they feel homeless right now. We're going to try to explain and give them a home that they can basically use the strength of their vote and how they can get involved 
And that's Americans together. You also said that that in a president, you're looking for someone and you're you said who has the knowledge, has the function and has the ability to, to do that just there to bring this country together. Is Joe Biden that candidate? Well, that's what that's a Joe Biden I used to know. I mean, I, I've, and I've, I've had this conversation with him and with his people that he's gone too far to the left. They've pushed him and pulled him and whatever. But that's not where America is. That's not where our country is. So I'm hoping the Joe Biden that we saw in 2020 will be the Joe Biden we see in 2024. If that can be done. If not, it's going to be a long road for everybody. Are you going to endorse President Biden? I'm not endorsing anybody right now. We're going to see what all happens. We've still got plenty of time here. I'm going to do everything I can to help move them back to the middle and show them where the strength of this country lies, where the voting block of the country lies. And the extremes are going to be there no matter what. And I respect that. And I will do everything I, I can to make sure they have the ability to voice their opinion. What does it but say? The minority, but what the minority is- does not, 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 that's not rule the day. What does it say that you're not endorsing President Biden? What should people read into that? No, no, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do everything I can to make sure that we have a pathway forward where the center of this country is going to be represented. And that's the center left and center right. That's where the decisions, that's where people live their lives. That's the type of government they want. They don't want the extremes. And what we're seeing is extremes. Donald Trump is an extremist. And with that, there's people that are going in that direction. I still believe there's enough good Republicans and Democrats that want this centrist type of approach to governing. Joe Manchin's idea of what it is to be in the center, you know, looks to a lot of people like um, (laughs) not exactly the center and not center right or center left, but actually pretty far to the right. Um, you know, he has opposed what is what is what has Biden gone too far left on? One of the things that's near and dear to Manchin's heart are things uh, rulings from the Environmental Protection Agency, because Manchin makes his money on coal. So anything that the EPA does that reigns in uh, the ability to mine coal and refine coal and sell coal and burn coal, that is something that uh, Joe Manchin considers far left because that is where he has made his dough. I wish uh, Caitlin had asked him for specifics on one issue where where Biden has moved too far left for Joe Manchin. Dollars to donuts, the EPA would have come up. It hits Manchin where he lives. He of the uh, live aboard yacht. You know, he doesn't have an apartment in Washington. He lives on a boat. And um, I don't know where he keeps the Maserati, whether he keeps the Maserati in Washington or whether he keeps it at home. But, yeah, man of the people, Joe Manchin. One last thing uh, before we wrap up this. uh, I was really tempted to share this yesterday, but. I was worried that it might be a little too silly, but you know what? At least once or twice a week, maybe we should work some silly into the show just to keep us fresh. And, and you know, it's not all doom and gloom. It's a lot. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, but we got to be able to keep our sense of humor. 
John Oliver. For those of you who don't have HBO, John Oliver does a show. He's just come back after his holiday break. And one of the things that he focused on was the corruption in the Supreme Court and who's being bought and by whom and how they're being bought and the fact that uh, Clarence Thomas um, is the leader of the pack by head and shoulders above the other ones as far as gifts and vacations, et cetera, and so forth, that um, up until recently, they felt fell, uh, fell under personal items. And, you know, personal items don't really have to be listed. You know, if somebody gives you a vacation worth half a million dollars, you know, it's a personal item. Nope, personal item. Don't have to list that. So um, as you as you know, Clarence Thomas has a benefactor in billionaire Harlan Crow. I believe at one time Harlan Crow was the driving force behind the Wyndham Hotel chain. I don't know if his family still is or not. Harlan Crow has taken Clarence and Ginny Thomas on expensive vacations. There have been private yachts. There have been private jets, etc., and so forth. Um, Clarence Thomas also did a, a, a 60 Minutes where they focused on the fact that he and Ginny like to get in their RV and just drive around the country. Except what 60 Minutes failed to uh, reveal was that big expensive RV was uh, bought on credit, a loan that pretty much has been paid off by Harlan Crow. So John Oliver thought, you know, what can he do? What can he do to decorrupt the Supreme Court. Well, he came to the conclusion that the biggest thing that the Supreme Court needs right now is for Clarence Thomas to leave it. He wants Clarence Thomas not just to recuse himself from various cases, but he wants Clarence Thomas to resign from the court. How do you make that happen? Well, maybe you offer to give him a two and a half million dollar motor coach and you offer to pay him a million dollars a year for the rest of either his life or John Oliver's life. This is pretty good. Listen to this. Justice Thomas, we have a special offer for you tonight. (laughs) We are prepared to offer you $1 million a year for the rest of your life if you simply agree to leave the Supreme Court immediately and never come back. It is that simple. Just sign this contract. Resign and the money is all yours. This is not a joke. If you watch our show, you know jokes aren't really our thing. This is real. A million dollars a year until you or I die. We have spoken to experts who've all told us that best they can tell, this is somehow legal, which seems crazy to me because it really feels like it shouldn't be. But as they keep pointing out, there are no rules in place to stop me from doing this. And let me be clear, HBO is not putting up the money for this. I am personally on the hook. You can make me really regret this. I could be doing stand-up tours to pay for your retirement for years, but this officer is not this offer is not forever. You have exactly 30 days from midnight tonight to make your resignation effective. 30 days from the offer being made on Sunday. And John Oliver, and apparently this is legit and it is legal. He gets an RV, which John Oliver toured on the show. Huge king bed, fireplace, washer, dryer. It's worth uh, $2.4 They're going to give him the RV and pay him 
a million dollars a year for the rest of his life, or as since it's coming out of John Oliver's pocket, John Oliver said, or for the rest of my life, should he predecease him. How, Andrew, how do you suppose John Roberts feels about this, that one of the preeminent justices on his court has become a laughingstock? Let's take a break. We've got more to talk about right after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am pleased to be able to have a conversation with Blanche Bong Cook, who is a professor of law and social justice at Loyola School of Law. She particularly studies feminism and police violence and what happens uh, when there is violence against women of color. Blanche, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Joan. Always a pleasure and a great fan of your show. Thank you. I know you are planning a big symposium in April uh, called Say Her Name. Tell me about that. So there are scores of black women who've been killed by the police uh, and also in custody. And a significant number of these deaths have gone silenced, forgotten, and ignored. I have the very good fortune of teaching a class here at Loyola University Chicago School of Law called Say Her Name, Intersectional Feminism and Police Violence. I have 20 of some of the most brilliant soon-to-be attorneys in the nation, and together we're organizing a symposium to draw attention to this problem and to analyze the legal problems at issue in these deaths. Just to give you some stats surrounding the problem, uh, black women make up just 10% of the female population in the United States, yet they account for one-fifth of all women killed by the police and almost one-third of unarmed women killed by the police. In fact, black women are the only race gender group to have a, ma- a majority of its members killed while unarmed. Uh, nationwide data from the Fatal Interactions with Police Study research po- project that was published in 2018 indicated that from May 1st, 2013 to January 1st, 2015, of black women were unarmed when killed. Um, A few more stats here. From 2013 to 2023, law enforcement killed more than 100 black women. Uh, Say Her Name, which is a campaign organized by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, extended that research back to 1975 and uncovered an additional 200 black women whose lives were stolen in these ways. A few more stats. Um, Black people are uh, most likely to be killed by the police three times more likely to be killed by police than white persons. In Chicago alone, uh, the police killed black people at 22 times the rate of white people in years 2013 to 2020. What's most unfortunate about this in 98.3% of the killings by police from 2013 to 2020 uh, have not resulted in officers being charged with a crime. So on April 12th of this year, starting at 8.30 in the morning and going until 6.30 at night, here at Loyola University of Chicago School of Law, 
we are hosting an all-day symposium to draw attention to this crisis. It is free. It is open to the public. And we're hoping that the public uh, joins us in drawing attention to this issue. I know um, that you've, you've got all of these numbers in your head. We, we know there is a problem here. Do any of the studies that you've looked over put it into any kind of context? Is there um, a likely a context? Um, are these uh, killings, do they take place during traffic stops in the commission of a crime when somebody's in custody? What are the what are the contextual facts that maybe show us exactly where the problems lie? So there are a lot of different studies and there are a number of legal scholars and scholars generally in other disciplines who are writing about this issue. I um, ask your reader uh, to take a look at Say Her Name, which is co-authored by Kimberly Crenshaw and the African-American Policy Forum, the version that came out last year. And to ask, answer your question in terms of the context, these killings happen in all kinds of situations. So we have the issue of Rikia Boyd here in Chicago, who was killed while sitting in a park by an off-duty police officer. We have Brianna Taylor, and these are just examples, uh, who was killed in a botched uh, search warrant execution. And she is not the only person who has been killed in a botched search warrant execution. You have the case of Sandra Bland, uh, who was stopped during a traffic stop uh, she was arrested during the course of the traffic stop. There's some debate that she was actually arrested for failing to put out her cigarette, which she had a constitutional right to do. Um, she was transported and placed in custody and allegedly committed suicide while she was in custody. There have been numerous cases uh, where the police have been called in response to um, issues involving mental illness and have killed uh, the person who was either a part of that call or subject to that call. Um, and that raises all kinds of questions about using the police to respond to mental illness calls. Um, there have been situations um, involving women who are in custody, um, and the correctional officers are called in any number of circumstances. There may be um, a kind of breakdown that's happening, but in the course of trying to apprehend the person, the police have killed that person. We've had cases involving chokeholds. Um, and again, I caution the readers to read Paul Butler's chokehold. Um, and that is, uh, 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 he's looking at a number of cases involving police violence um, and excessive use of force. So the answer to your question in terms of the dynamics, it can take any number of dynamics. Again, search warrant executions, arrests, um, calls for people in distress. Now, in terms of why this is happening, one way I like to think about this issue is these deaths are ignored, they're silenced, and they're forgotten. They're also made normal and routine, so they become normalized and routinized. And what we're looking at in the symposium is why they're becoming normalized, why they're becoming routinized, and also why are they being silenced and ignored. And that has everything to do with 
anti-blackness, that has everything to do with implicit bias, that has everything to do with a very, very long history of profiling black people generally as dangerous, suspicious, and in need of being controlled. Um, And that perception of black persons generally is ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. It's saturated. And, and it, it, it influences the way that police are interacting with these individuals. It influences the way that the police are investigating these cases when these women are killed. It influences the way that prosecutors are handling these cases. It influences the way that prosecutors present these cases to the grand juries and then come back and say that the grand jury refuses to indict. It influences the way that judges are looking at these cases in their courtrooms. It influences the way that grand jurors and petite jurors are looking at the evidence in these cases. And then it also influences the court of public opinion, how people are viewing and receiving these cases. The numbers suggest that we're not dealing with one-off cases. We're dealing with an epidemic. We're dealing with a pandemic. We're dealing with really large numbers. And what I ask your viewers to think about is if this were a situation in which we had black police officers who were disproportionately killing white women, would we put signs up in our yards that say we love and respect the police? In other words, if the races of the individuals involved were different, if these were black police officers killing white women, would these cases go ignored? Would they go forgotten? Um, Would they not be a part of the public discourse? Would there not be a hue and cry in public about how this has got to stop and we've got to fix this situation? It It has long been argued that part of the problem with having a largely white police force, especially when it comes to black men, is that there's this idea that you touched on. Um, the idea of the dangerous black man, they're big, they're strong and and, you know, they have to be uh, subdued in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have to do with a white man. So does that equation change? Would, would the equation change if we had more uh, African-American police officers or as we've seen in, in some of these incidents, is the training and the indoctrination such that um, that even having somebody who is African-American in a situation like this, as long as they're wearing that uniform, they're blue more than they're black. It, what is what is a solution here? So it's a really good question. It's a really tough question. Um, this business of implicit bias, this business of stereotyping, this business of quickly associating black people with dangerousness, suspiciousness, and in need of being controlled is learned. You don't, you don't pop out of the womb with these thoughts. These thoughts are learned. We are socialized. We are groomed in all sorts of ways to make those associations. The good news is because they are learned, they can be unlearned. So, Part of the problem is when you start talking about anti-blackness, you're talking about ideas and thoughts that that saturate every atmosphere, every part of our lives, nursery schools, kindergartens, hospitals. So the problem with offering a solution to a ubiquitous problem is one solution is not going to solve a ubiquitous problem. 
a ubiquitous problem requires a whole lot of solutions, a whole lot of interventions. One of the interventions that I do recommend is implicit bias training, not only for the police, because we're, again, dealing with a ubiquitous problem. I suggest implicit bias training also for journalists, for teachers. I mean, again, we're dealing with a ubiquitous problem. And again, the issue is, if it's something learned, it is certainly something that can be unlearned. I agree that our police forces need to be diversified for a whole lot of reasons. Our police, when our police forces are diversified, it adds to the credibility of the police force. When a diverse community sees a police force that looks like it, it adds to the credibility of that police force. The unfortunate truth is there is a lot of anti-blackness in all kinds of people, which include black people as well as other people of color. So simply making uh, a police force all black is not necessarily going to solve this problem. You're dealing with this association of blackness with dangerousness that has existed for hundreds of years. And so it is not going to happen overnight that we fix this problem. But what definitely helps is we bring this problem into the public discourse, that we talk about this, we try to figure out the problems with one another, but that we're very conscious of the idea that one fix is not going to fix an entire, a structural problem, a systemic problem. Blanche, are there any communities right now that you've identified that are doing better when it comes to this kind of um, racial unconscious or conscious bias? Actually, the Chicago Police Department, um, I, 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 let me just say, uh, the Chicago, the Department of Justice, the federal arm of the uh, Department of Justice came in and did a pattern and practice investigation of the Chicago Police Department um, as a result of a number of the unarmed deaths um, caused by the Chicago Police Department. There's data out there. Uh, that the Chicago Police Department has actually improved. The number of deaths occasioned by officers with respect to unarmed persons has actually decreased. So there's data out there um, that if you make improvements, and there have been many, many improvements that have been suggested by all kinds of researchers, scholars, data groups, but there's research out there that when these changes are implemented, that the numbers of these deaths can come down without compromising the safety of the community. Here's just one example. The use of cameras. The use of police cameras is not going to solve this problem alone. However, the video footage created by these police cameras protects the police from false accusations. It protects the public. And it, it provides evidence so that we can all see what occurred. Now, there also needs to be policies that those police cameras have got to be on. Uh, there have to be policies about how long the videotapes are retained. We have some police departments in the nation um, who are releasing, let's just say, video footage of Black Lives Matter protesters out in public. 
and this has led to problems of employment for some of those protesters and also safety issues for those protesters. It's like doxing. That's basically doxing them. Right. Exactly. The problem is people are looking for quick fixes to a problem that is systemic, a problem that is structural, a problem that is historical and has existed for hundreds of years. Police cameras are a good idea, but they're not the only idea. And even when we implement these small changes, ongoing measures have to be taken to ensure that police cameras are used uh, in the best way possible to alleviate this problem of excessive force and these particular killings. You said that you have seen some progress right here in Chicago. Um, how did that was it was it a change in the way officers were trained? Was it a change in their local uh, district leadership? Was it a change in attitude at the top? How do you since you see some success there, can we figure out can we drill down and figure out why it occurred? Sure. So there's a couple of things that have been successful for the Chicago PD. This is not to suggest that there isn't more room for improvement. The last thing I want is my phone my phone ringing uh, with uh, activists and scholars uh, who have uh, misinterpreted what I'm saying here. There has been improvement. There is certainly need for more. That improvement is um, has been occasioned by a lot of different things. Emphasis on training. Um, bans on the use of illegal chokeholds, an emphasis on training that includes a kind of implicit bias training. There's also been a change in the mood and culture, Um, and this this has benefited the Chicago Police Department because there's been changes in leadership, and that change in leadership has been deliberate because the CPD is actively trying to change the culture. So speaking broadly, uh, again, I encourage your listeners to take a look at Chokehold by Paul Butler, who chronicles the atmosphere and culture of a lot of police departments, where, for example, it was routine to speak of people of color as apes, as monkeys. I mean, there were all kinds of epithets that were being used. And epithets are important because those epithets reflect a kind of culture, a a shared culture of how people of color are being viewed and how people of color are being surveilled, how they're being policed, and how they're being handled. What you've got as a result of these Department of Justice investigations is the Department of Justice comes in. They make a list of recommendations. Those recommendations are bargained with the police union. Um, In several cases, like the Chicago Police Department, you get the buy-in from the union that agrees to some of these changes. And what you get in the Chicago Police Department is a decrease, again, in the number of these killings. So in answer to your question, when you have leadership that recognizes a problem and then they're willing to make structural changes within the police department, which includes changing the leadership, emphasizing the training, engaging in a very, in the very difficult training of making sure the police are aware of the problems that are occasioned by anti-blackness, that are occasioned by um, 
feelings of hostility with respect to other races and other ethnicities, um, other religious groups, um, that when leadership makes it clear that that kind of animus won't be tolerated, and they also back that up, that you will be suspended, that you will be terminated, that you will not be selected, um, then you will see a gradual change in the culture. And again, you will see a change in terms of the numbers. And also in terms of the credibility of the police force to the public, when the public sees these changes, when months go by, years go by, and there aren't these unarmed shootings, you have a public that is much more inclined to appreciate and see the value of a police force that is working well. And that has all kinds of repercussions. You have people who might be more inclined. Uh, to be involved in legitimate investigations where the police are trying to find uh, someone who has violated the law. If the public sees the police as a credible workforce, as a credible police force, sometimes there are people who are more inclined to participate um, with, um, with the police work, legitimate police work. This uh, symposium that you're doing in April, um, I mean, it's from 8.30 to 6.30. Obviously, you're going to be there. <laughs> I'm also assuming uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is going to be there. Who are some of the other people who will be presenting? Um, unfortunately, Kimberly Crenshaw will not be joining oh. us for this. And we would love to have her. We would absolutely love to have her because her work has occasioned the class, has occasioned the symposium, but unfortunately she will not be there. We anticipate that Priscilla Ossian, who is a professor at Loyola uh, in um, uh, Los Angeles, will be joining, be joining us. Terry McMurtry Chubb, who is a law professor at UIC, um, will be joining us, and we are still gathering. We, we, we have two um, actual sisters, um, both Harvard Law graduates, both law school professors. Actually, there are three of them who are Harvard Law graduates and all law professors, but only two of them can join us, Jalila um, Jefferson and also Jamilia Jefferson. Jalila is at Wayne State University in Detroit, and Jamila is at uh, the University of Missouri, I believe, in Kansas City. We're still working on the scholars that we're bringing. We have extended uh, invitations to a number of other scholars in the Chicago community um, and also outside of the Chicago community, particularly um, legal scholars who write in the area of police violence. But uh, we've also extended invitations to a number of activists um, who are actively involved in shaping the public discourse about police shootings. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there any uh, interest in inviting somebody from law enforcement? I sometimes interview people who have retired from law enforcement and then write books about how the training can be approved um, and how the attitudes could be improved. I mean, it doesn't have to be somebody actively in law enforcement, but w would that kind of input, do you think, be valuable? I think it's a great suggestion. We hadn't thought about inviting uh, someone from law enforcement, but I, I am open to all sorts of ideas and all sorts of suggestions. I should add that this is a symposium that we anticipate putting on yearly. 
so there is a lot of room for um, future directions and future participants. So I am very, very open to um, suggestions for the symposium that we're having this year as well as into the future. Joan, I thank you. What we'll do is I will take this back to my organizing committee um, and see if we can actually get someone who's currently on law, uh, who is currently a law enforcement officer or who writes in the area and um, see if they might be inclined to come in and join us for um, the discussion. Yeah, I've uh, over over the years I've done this show, I've interviewed a lot of authors, people who uh, sometimes um, it's, it's always been men, uh, but sometimes men of color who, you know, take a real clear eyed look at the whole process and offer uh, from their point of view things that work, things that don't work. I also know that the uh, well, she's she's female. Uh, she's white. The former police chief of Aurora, Illinois, whose name escapes me now, but who got such. Uh, a lot of attention because of the way she handled the mass shooting in Aurora. People were saying it was like a textbook way of responding to these kinds of things. I know she no longer works in day-to-day law enforcement. I believe she is now a consultant. And um, my memory is just not churning her name up right now. But while I think about that, real quick, we have a caller who wanted to make a comment. Uh, Pam, uh, you're on with uh, me and uh, Blanche Bong Cook. Go ahead. Thank you, Joan. I am not new, and, and to uh, your guest, I'm not new to this issue, and I've really tried to participate and make a difference from attending beat meetings, community meetings, public safety, all the way to testifying at the um, the hearing for the Chicago for the uh, when the uh, DOJ came in for the uh, for the um, I'm sorry the decree. And so my concern is, and I've always had thoughts about this, and, and here's where I'm going. Uh, Joan, you, you recommended law enforcement come on the symposium. I'm not opposed to that, but I would like to know what is their point of view, because too many law enforcement just reinforce what they already do. They don't uh, enforce the law the same on the north side, Joan, or downtown or in white communities like they do the black communities. And so it's my question just to state, or my question is, could it possibly be that we have to make sure that we do not have racist officers on the force? And I'm very intentional using the word racist because the unconscious bias and all of that, that's not cutting to the core issue of this problem. A person in law enforcement, your first introduction to people of color, other ethnic groups, religions, uh, or the LGBT community, it cannot be as a law enforcement person, particularly when you have, I'm just going to call it a hate, or there is just um, whatever you want to call it. There is just racism there, Joan. It is in the personnel. And I've begged our policymakers to do something about making sure that you get the right uh, individual in these positions. In social work, they ask you on your resume application, have you ever worked with this demographic before? I know that because I've worked in social work. And perhaps we need to start looking closely at the personnel and in that policy, the hiring policies, to have a panel of questions that try to weed out the racist. And like I said, and I'm, I'm not using that word lightly. I'm intentional about that because well, this issue isn't going away, Joan. It's been here forever. 
Pam, I really thank you for that. And when we come back, when Blanche and I come back after the news, um, I will have her talk about what uh, any research that she's seen that addresses hiring practice, who to hire, how to screen. Thank you for that comment. Blanche Bong Cook and I will be back talking about violence, particularly violence against black women by police when we come right back after the news. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor Blanche Baum-Cook, who's a professor of law and social justice at Loyola School of Law. We have talked before about her area of expertise, which is the intersection of feminism and police violence, particularly police violence against women of color. There is going to be a symposium in April that is open to the public. It's April 12th from 830 to 630. And it's going to take place at the Loyola University Chicago School of Law in the Power Rogers and Smith ceremonial courtroom. Um, Blanche, do people have to register in advance? Do they have to get a ticket? Um, they do have to register in advance. However, um, if they show up uh, at the security desk and show their ID, they will be let in. For planning purposes, it would be a lot easier for us if they yeah. actually register. The yes. registration will be open on Thursday of next week. If you Google or if you use a search engine, uh, Loyola University Chicago School of Law, say her name, colon, intersectional feminism and police violence, April 12th, our website will come up and there will be registration information there. Um, there is breakfast. There's also lunch uh, that's being provided. So there will be a number of questions that um, uh, attendees will be asked in terms of um, any um, diet restrictions, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, right before we uh, broke for news, we got a, a passionate call from Pam, who lives in Chicago. And she wanted to know, with all of the studies you've seen and all of the data you have, does any of it address hiring practices? And is it as simple as choosing the right people to be law enforcement? Could you talk about that, Blanche? Sure. And again, I want to emphasize that we're dealing with a a problem that has a lot of different valences, a lot of different areas. So again, one little fix does not solve the whole problem. Uh, There is research out there about hiring practices, interviewing practices, applications. I've actually written a law review article, and I wrote this after the Michael Brown incident, in which I argued that if you can use implicit bias tests to test for implicit bias, you can also design and use implicit bias tests as part of the screening process when police officers um, are applying. Um, there is, again, data out there that when law enforcement is much more aggressive about their hiring practices, as your caller pointed out, when they ask specific questions on the applications about whether you've worked with any number of demographics, 
um, and follow-up questions about that. Exactly what were your what were your experiences? What did you do? But if you take a much more active approach in the screening process, there's data out there that indicate that again this adds to a change in culture. A couple of things I wanted to respond to um, from the caller. One, I would encourage the caller to come to our symposium because it's her insight that we definitely uh, want to. Uh, incorporate into the symposium. We definitely want your call, your your listeners, and that particular caller to be involved in the public discourse about this issue. Um, she's absolutely right. There were a number of things that were requested on the consent decree. Uh, a number of things were agreed to. A number of things were not agreed to. But there has been improvement. That is not to say uh, that there isn't room for a lot more improvement. I agree with her that this debate about implicit bias, sometimes this business about unconscious racism um, is unacceptable in a lot of ways. One, when people engage in implicit bias behavior. So, for example, to the extent that police officers are killing black people because they are associating black bodies with dangerousness, suspiciousness, and being in need of control, that is not happening because they're unconscious. They're not sleepwalking. Um, they're not laboring under a seizure. That is very conscious behavior. The problem is the association that people are making between persons of color and dangerousness is happening so quickly that they don't have to sort of cogitate to draw that um, connection, that it's happening automatically. And I agree with your caller. It's not happening because someone's unconscious. It's happening because they have that much conviction about it. They believe that. Um, so I agree with her. There's a lot of problems with the debate and the language used to describe implicit bias behavior. And there's some people who argue that it's something that can't be controlled because it's happening unconsciously. That is purely unacceptable. That is purely unacceptable. Because if you can't control it and it's unconscious, then you can't assert authority over people of color of any kind. You can't police them. You can't grade them. You can't look at their loan applications. So that that is an unacceptable argument. This is conscious behavior. People are conscious when they act on their anti-blackness, when they act on Islamophobia, when they act on homophobia, when they act on transphobia. These are not unconscious individuals. These are purely conscious individuals. It's just that their negative stereotyping becomes automatic. Um, this particular symposium and our class, I, I should say this uh, about Loyola, we are committed to um, and uh, we, we are committed to a kind of anti-subordination project that is reflected in our mission statement, that is reflected in the class that I'm teaching, as well as the symposium. And so we are committed to dealing with this problem of police killings as historical, as systemic, and also structural. We're also meeting head-on the anti-blackness, the misogynoir, the um, mis misogyny, the patriarchy, all of this that is intersecting and causing not only the killings, but the way that we're treating these killings as a juridical matter, as a matter of public discourse, in the court of public opinion. So the symposium is squarely going to deal with 
the historical nature of anti-blackness and particularly anti-blackness as it applies to women of color and problematizing and sifting out and identifying and analyzing what is happening with these women, what they're, what's happening with them in their individual cases, but also the pattern and practices um, involved in all of these killings, which again, has everything to do with anti-blackness, has everything to do with misogynoir, has everything to do with misogyny, has everything to do with patriarchy. And other, unlike other symposiums that may be addressing police violence, we are specifically addressing the racism, the sexism, and the classism involved in these particular killings. By the way, um, Andy, um, our, our board op, helped me out. Uh, the woman who was head of the Aurora Police Department, her name is Kristen Zeman, and she did retire as the Aurora Police Chief. She was actually tapped by the Department of Justice. She was one of nine experts that the DOJ brought in to review the Uvalde shooting response. Um, and I don't know if she still lives locally, but um, there are... There are a number of um, Blanche, and, and I'm sure you have access to all this, too, but there are a number of former law enforcement people who have written books uh, about, you know, the racism they experienced and the things that went right in their job, the things that worked for them and how they wish that some of these uh, ideas and policies could be implemented across the country. I, I, I have a question, and uh, this is going back when you were giving me a list of uh, the different situations where black women had been shot by police. One of the first things you said was that there was a woman sitting in a park who was shot by police. Can you tell me more about that? That just, I mean, that just, I found that jaw dropping. Can you remember um, which specific case that was and, and give me some more information about it? So um, this is Rikia Boyd, uh, and uh, she was uh, 22 years old. Um, She was a black woman fatally shot here in Chicago by an off-duty police officer on March 12, 2012. Um, According to reports, uh, this off-duty police officer drove to Douglas Park on the west side of Chicago. Um, after there had been some sort of noise complaint, uh, he approached a group of individuals who were sitting in the park. And there is some debate about the altercation that happened between them. Uh, but the end result is this off-duty police officer um, shot into the crowd. Um, and uh, he actually hit Rikia Boyd uh, in the head. Uh, she subsequently um, uh, passed away uh, as a result of that. Um, her family uh, in 2012 filed a lawsuit against Chicago. Uh, the case was settled. Um, apparently, this off-duty police officer was charged with involuntary manslaughter. Um, there was a trial that began. Um, but a judge, uh, and this is highly unusual, uh, in a directed verdict uh, throughout the charge, um, because he, uh, apparently uh, the off-duty police officer was charged with recklessness, and the judge found that this was actually intentional conduct. 
and could not be charged as reckless conduct. Again, this is sort of going to the mens rea of the police officer involved. The problem was um, that because of double jeopardy, this police officer could not be charged again. Uh, So the officer uh, was not convicted uh, as a result of this conduct. Apparently, he had been uh, censured by uh, the police department. Uh, It's my understanding that he was actually terminated um, from the police department. And again, the family settled uh, outside um, for um, uh, a wrongful death lawsuit. Um, But again... This is the kind of case that we're, we're centering. These are the kinds of cases that we're talking about. What's unfortunately true um, for uh, Breonna Taylor um, and the, bo- um, the uh, botched um, execution of the search warrant is that is, it is not, uh, it wasn't a one-off circumstance. It wasn't aber- aberrant circumstances. There have been a number of cases involving the shooting of individuals in the house who are unrelated to to the search warrant or execution in some cases who are shot. Um, There was a young girl in Detroit uh, whose name Ayanna Stanley, um, who was killed. Um, She was uh, maybe 10, uh, seven years old. She was seven years old um, in her home sleeping. Um, and what was unfortunately true is the police came in to execute a search warrant, and in the process of executing that search warrant, um, they um, killed her. Um, one of my students who will be um, presenting at our symposium uh, is a former journalist. Her name is Carrie Casper, and she is going to be talking about a case involving Katherine Johnston, who was 92 years old, Um, and she was a law-abiding citizen. Uh, The police came in and executed a search warrant in her home. She she was not uh, the target of the search warrant, and they killed her. This does not to suggest that this came up during uh, Carrie's presentation. When we characterize Katherine Johnson as law-abiding, we are not suggesting for a second that shooting anyone in their home during the course of executing a search warrant is justified. I simply mention this because a number of your listeners, and this happens um, when we talk about these cases in public, but a number of listeners will say, well, what, wasn't that person involved in some sort of wrongdoing? Katherine Johnson was not involved in any kind of wrongdoing. Brianna Taylor was not involved in any kind of wrongdoing. Ayanna Stanley Jones, who was seven years old, was not involved in any kind of wrongdoing. I should also note that in the case of Katherine Johnson and also in the case of Breonna Taylor, part of the problem is you had officers who were lying under oath in order to get these search warrants. So that's another layer of the problem. They were lying under oath to get the search warrants. And then you're dealing with all kinds of problems with the execution of the search warrants. Let me just footnote here, uh, for example, Part of the problem with Breonna Taylor is you have the Castle Doctrine. And under the Castle Doctrine, there is a whole line of doctrine that honors the right of people to arm themselves in their homes and protect themselves in their homes. Now, running counter to this, you have police practices 
where the police are basically barging into the home mm-hmm. and announcing they are at the same time that they're barging into the home. That is a recipe for disaster because yeah. if you barge into the home... And even and if you, no you've idea. got a legally registered gun and you think that you're um, in the process of being... Uh, invaded by burglars or thieves or something, and you go to reach for that gun, um, right. you know, police have been taught, right. don't, you know, you got to react. It's, you know, they're, you've got to react instantly, and that's a recipe for disaster. I'm reminded, even with a white guy, uh, Rick Wilson, uh, um, who's big with um, one of the uh, creators of the Lincoln Project, he was swatted recently where the, somebody called... The SWAT team where he lives at like three in the morning and said that there was a a dead body or there had been a shooting. So like at three in the morning, all of these cars pull up screaming to his house. And he said, I, I have a permit. I have a permit to carry. I have a permit to keep a weapon in my house. He said, but I, there was no way I was going to grab my weapon when I went to the front door. He said, I don't think I would have survived. And I actually, probably that's what the swatter was hoping would happen. But he said, you know, I walked out there in my shorts and my T-shirt with my hands up. And, um, and obviously he was able to explain the situation. But that's, that's a disaster waiting to happen. These search warrants have to be, they have to be right. They have to be based on good intel. They have to be given the right address, for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Joan. Um, This would be a concern for everyone, uh, for all of your listeners. And again, this is also why we're having the symposium. This is not an issue that is specific to women of color. These are issues that everybody needs to be concerned about. How do you reconcile your right to defend your home with law enforcement practices that are barging into your home and announcing who they are at the same time? Because the problem is when they're barging into the home, you may not hear that this is law enforcement. Exactly. And, and when this happens, your adrenaline is rushing so hard that you're not in your right mind in terms of your response. Now, I should state with the the Breonna Taylor case, there the accusation was that, um, so um, there was an investigation. Breonna Taylor, again, was the young woman who was shot in her home in the middle of night in Louisville. Um, that there were at least 12 witnesses who stated they did not hear the police knock and announce. There was one witness who stated that he did not hear the police knock and announce two times. But on the third time, uh, he stated that he did hear the police knock and announce. Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, who was with her at the time, stated he did not hear the police knock and announce. In any case, when the police barged in, he fired warning shots. And the police let off several rounds that eventually killed um, Breonna Taylor. The same thing was true for Katherine Johnson. Uh, the police entered her home, um, entered in through what's called a dynamic entry, where they, again, to the extent that they announced at all, they are announcing while this, at the same time they're barging in. She let off a round, apparently because she had no idea who was barging into her home, and then in return, they let out, um, they, 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 they 
what a several rounds. Um, I'm not sure of the exact number, but she was killed in the process. So I'm just giving those examples as the kinds of examples that your entire viewership should be worried about. Again, this is purely a recipe for disaster, and it is particularly a recipe for disaster that we should all be concerned about. Um, Pam, your caller, um, brought up a very good point, and that is, One of the things that we'll be exploring in the symposium is exactly what kind of policing is being done on the Gold Coast and what kind of policing is being done in Inglewood. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a good argument that people who live on the Gold Coast are having a very different experience with the police than people who are living in Inglewood. And the problem is that the people who live on the Gold Coast, their experience can't become the paradigm that we're all talking about, because there are other people in other areas who are not having that kind of experience. And to assume that everyone is having a Gold Coast experience with the police is the very kind of assumption that is silencing and ignoring these scores of cases of black women and other women of color who have been killed by the police. I am so glad that you and your colleagues are spending an entire day diving into this. And um, and I really hope that it does become a yearly occurrence because you've got to start by talking about this problem and studying this problem. That's the that's the beginning to solving a problem. Uh, Blanche, thank you for being here. Now, let's go over again before I let you go. Uh, For those of you who are listening and you'd really like to attend, remember, it is April 12th. That is a Friday, if I am got my calendar correct. It's 830 to 630. It's at the Loyola University Chicago School of Law in the Power Rogers and Smith ceremonial courtroom. It is free. It is open to the public. And uh, Blanche, uh, get, give again the web address where people can register. You don't have to register, but I've done these kinds of things before, and it really helps to know how many people are coming. We, the, our website is not up yet, but if you Google Loyola University Chicago School of Law, say her name, intersectional feminism and police violence, and then you also put April, the website will be up and running Thursday of next week, and all of the registration information will be there. Okay. Um, We'll make sure um, Andy, who's our board up today, he does a WCPT community calendar about events you can attend, and um, we'll make sure that if if Andy already hasn't written all of this down, we'll make sure that (laughs) that he gets it, and uh, once the website is up, We can maybe put this on our community calendar. Blanche, it is always a pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And it's programs and shows like yours that um, move this public discourse forward. Thank you so much for this opportunity, and thank you for your show. You're very, very welcome. It is my pleasure to speak to people like you. I'm very lucky in what I get to do for a living. Okay, we are going to take a break. We have um, more to come. There are some interesting things going on in North Carolina. We're going to talk to somebody who's reporting on North Carolina when we come back. 
Get ready for election 2024, the year of choices. Stay up to date with WCPT 820, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We love to talk to the reporters from uh, career newsrooms around the country because Courier goes to a state and pays attention, just like Block Club Chicago does with hyper-local stuff from Chicago neighborhoods. Uh, Courier Newsrooms goes to a state and really focuses on what is important in that state, the big issues, what's happening, what you need to be paying attention to. And uh, we are very pleased to be joined by Michael McElroy, who is the political reporter at Cardinal and Pine, interesting name, uh, the Courier Newsroom uh, publication for North Carolina. Michael, thanks for being here. Hi, Joan. Thanks very much for having me. Okay. Um, We want you to share in this very important political year that we are going through, what do we need to be paying attention to right now in North Carolina politics? Oh, well, there's a million things I think that everyone, not just North Carolinians, need to be paying attention to. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I know I'm biased, but I really do think that North Carolina is going to be one of, if not the key states uh, in the 2024 election for a lot of reasons. Um, one, it could certainly help decide um, the presidential election. Uh, Joe Biden has a really good chance of winning here, um, although it's close. It's going to be super, super, super close. But it, it can help tip the scales and all the kind of national things that everybody is worried about. Those things are also, uh, you know, those battle lines are also very clear on the local level, on the state legislature, both uh, abortion rights, um, school funding, um, lots and lots of things. So uh, I think it's a super interesting state. Um, I, I know that North Carolina has a new political map. I'm not exactly clear when it goes into effect. I'm a big fan of your first term congressman, Jeff Jackson. I follow him on social media and I love his little educational videos that he posts. And he uh, yeah. quite a while ago said, you know what? Uh, we've got new maps and there's absolutely no way I can be reelected to my seat. So, you know, I'm going to run for attorney general instead. But that map that he's talking about, is that the map that will be in effect in 2024 or does it take effect later? Uh, no, it's going to be in 2024. Yeah, um, the, there are three maps. All of them are under uh, lawsuits. Uh, but there, uh, the the state senate map, uh, the congressional map, and the state house map, um, and they're all uh, they're all uh, you know lawsuits have been filed. They're all for all of them. They're all in courts, but the court won't rule on them until after the 2024 election. So the lawsuits are uh, intentionally uh, kind of for 2026. So yes, the, that map that makes Jeff Jackson and uh, Congressman Wiley Nickel, for that matter, unable to win re-election, um, they are in place. Uh, so that's going to happen. There's not anything that's going to stop those maps from going into effect. Okay, I have two questions. Why the heck can't it be resolved by the election? It wouldn't that be the very definition of an issue that needs a speedy trial? What's going on in your state, Michael? 
Well, the the big reason is that the state legislature wants the state. Well, I got to go back, Joan. I got to go back. So go back. Go back. You start at the beginning. <laughs> the reason is because uh, the state supreme court switched from Democratic control um, to Republican control in 2022. And so that meant that the new Republican majority on the state Supreme Court uh, reheard uh, a case that the previous court had ruled on and overturned it, which is unheard of, uh, basically say, saying that the previous maps, which were uh, partisan gerrymandered, uh, they, that, that the Supreme Court had no say, that they could not stop the legislature from drawing any map that they wanted to, essentially. And so after that ruling, the state got the, the legislature got to redraw the maps and they intentionally waited until the last minute to redraw those maps in a hyper partisan way so that the, there would just be no more runway for mm. a court challenge to go into effect. Because I mean, our prime, our primary is March 5th. What is that? Two weeks away? Yeah. So, uh, we, we have an early primary. Um, now there were three. There were actually there's like a 155 lawsuits against these. Uh, that's an exaggeration. But there were a lot of lawsuits against these maps, and only one of them tried to get a block uh, on the state Senate map. Uh, and that a judge uh, rejected that in an immediate block. So uh, they're all in the courts, but they're not going to be resolved before the 2024 election. This new gerrymandered map that favors Republicans in North Carolina, do you think that, and obviously it's going to affect uh, those running for office at the state level, those running for office for Congress, could it potentially be a problem for President Biden? I don't think so, um, because um, the, the statewide elections here, um, are pretty, I mean, they, they, they reflect and honor the, the reality, the, polit- the re- political reality of North Carolina, which is a true 50-50 state. Um, and um, so, you know, Biden lost uh, to Trump here in 2020 uh, by like one and a quarter percentage point, something like that. But Roy Cooper, the Democratic governor, beat his Republican candidate by, by like five percentage points or something like that. He, he, he beat, beat him handedly. And so statewide offices do really well for Democrats here. Mm. Uh, Josh Stein, who's running for governor as a Democrat, won his attorney general's race. You know, so like uh, statewide elections do pretty well. Um, usually here. And so I don't believe it'll have an effect, but it's but it's also a reflection of why Republicans feel that they have to gerrymander the map, uh, because um, they a lot of times they have trouble winning uh, when a lot of people get to vote. Gee, imagine that. Um, you know, there were, in a bygone era, a, a political party would have looked at that and said, you know what, we need to change our policies. We um, clearly don't have policies that appeal to the vast number of voters instead of, oh, no, wait, let's just stay the same and gerrymander and, and try to keep those people who don't like us from from actually actually voting. Uh, and if you know, if Democrats do so well in the state um, why do you think they weren't able to retain control of the Supreme Court in North Carolina? Because people don't pay attention to the Supreme Court. 
Um, I mean, the, the, the state Supreme Court race, even in a pretty widely uh, participated election in 2022 for an off-year election, like there are, you know, the state Supreme Court total vote count was far less than the other races that year. Um, and uh, so, yeah, people just don't pay. And it's hard. It's, it is more confusing. And the, the, there are rules for how the judges can campaign. And so it's just not as much in your face. It's harder to find out exactly what they do. Supreme Court uh, or, or any court justices when they're running for election are uh, maybe even understandably so cagey about what they would and wouldn't do. So you have to kind of read between the lines. Um, it's a harder it's a harder thing to vote on. Michael, in a situation like that, is it up to the political party? For instance, I'm thinking about the election in Wisconsin of uh, Janet Protasiewicz, which um, definitely gave the Supreme Court in Wisconsin a solid Democratic majority. And again, she was a judge, so she was kind of limited. You could look at some of her previous rulings and certainly get an idea where her head was at. But uh, the Democratic Party stepped in and they made sure people understand you want abortion rights. You better vote for Janet. You don't want this taken away or that taken away. You better vote for Janet. Uh, Was this maybe a failure of the Democratic Party in North Carolina? There was a lot of money spent on those races um, from both parties. Um, and um, honestly, I, I I don't I'm not gonna I don't know I like I don't know if it was a strategic strategic error, but I, I do know a lot of money was spent um, and it was just uh, so widely unparticipated in. Even when these other election uh, other votes kind of uh, gained voters in an off year. Um, but I, but I'll also also say though, like uh, you know, this is a true fifty fifty state, and so there are a lot of conservatives, there are a lot of Republicans. It is not a sixty forty state Democrat that has been somehow robbed into a majority Republican. It is a true fifty fifty, and it just it, it, the numbers didn't didn't fall the way. Well, uh, trust me, Michael. I've been covering elections for a very long time, and I know. Yeah. When it comes to judges, whether it's Supreme Court judges or just judges up for retention or or running for various offices. I mean, even people who care about politics sometimes glaze over. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I have two young adult children and they've always voted. They've voted in every election since they've been able to. But they count on me to tell them which judges, you know, I remember my son and I was like, Hey, did you vote? And he goes, well, I haven't gotten your, your email about the judges yet. I can't vote. You know, it is even people who care about various offices sometimes just, and it isn't always that they don't feel they know anything. They sort of feel like it's, um, I don't know, above their pay grade or, you know, oh, I don't really know about judges. I don't know who does what. I, I better not vote at all in, in this kind of thing because, I, you know, I don't want to do something wrong. We need yeah. to make a much stronger effort to educate people about, you know, what you're voting for. And, you know, and, you know, like I just um, I've got a daughter who's in L.A. and the L.A. Times came out with their voting guide. And one of the things, thank God, that they did uh, race by race by race through every judicial race, who they were endorsing and why they were endorsing that person. And, you know, I mean, for most of us, 
unless you have a guide, whether it's from a bar association or an activist group, it is really hard to be intelligent enough to to vote in a responsible manner when it comes to judges. I think we really need to think about this and how we do it. I can't I can't agree with you more. Um, it is uh, it's super, super important. And, and to like the consequent, it could be argued that there is no race in North Carolina that has been more consequential uh, than the state Supreme Court uh, mm-hmm. races. Um, uh, because it's not just the rulings that they did, but it's also the new chief justice has changed the rules uh, to allow himself to stay in past the previous retirement age. Um, There have just been lots of things that they've done, and they have real power. And even if the power isn't there, the legislature now, the Republican-controlled legislature, which has at the moment one person supermajority, um, knows that there is that safety net there, and they don't have to really worry about the law anymore. And they are oh. passing, they are passing laws that uh, the initial trial judges and the appeals court judges are, you know, sure to shut down. But then, once they get to the Supreme State Supreme Court, are likely to be upheld. Wow. Um, Michael, we need to take a real quick break. I'm talking to Michael McElroy, who's the political reporter at Cardinal and Pine, which is uh, the Courier news outlet that covers North Carolina politics. I want to talk to him a little bit more about my close personal friend via social media, Jeff Jackson, when we come back after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Uh, It's just refreshing. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. I'm joined by Michael McElroy, who's the political reporter at Cardinal and Pine. They focus on the state of North Carolina. And I've mentioned repeatedly and shared audio on this show of a first term congressman from North Carolina, Jeff Jackson, who um, became a viral sensation because of his ability to speak clearly and explain not only the part that we see going on on Capitol Hill, but the part that he was able to see behind the scenes and shared with us. Uh, it really was um, an education in the reality of what it's like on Capitol Hill. And then, of course, he announced uh, a while back that... Um, He was gerrymandered out of his seat, that there was, in his opinion, absolutely no chance that um, he could continue on in Congress. So uh, he announced that he was going to be running for attorney general, as I believe he said, you know, they think they can get rid of me. Well, they can't. I'm running for attorney general now. Um, I know that he's gotten a lot of attention outside of North Carolina, Michael. What do the people of, mm-hmm. of North Carolina think of Jeff Jackson? Well, I think he was a popular uh, congressman for sure. Um, but he's uh, the primary for attorney general is, like I said, in a couple of weeks, and um, he's got a he's got a tough primary opponent. Um, so it's not guaranteed that he will be the nominee. Um, uh, but, uh, if he wins the primary, um, then, the primary um, opponent, is that, a, is that a, is that the incumbent you mentioned earlier? 
No, no, no. The incumbent oh. is Josh Stein, and he is running uh, for governor. He's a Democratic nominee for governor. Uh, but so his uh, his opponent is a DA in Durham uh, named Satana DeBerry, and she's a tough, you know, tough uh, DA, um, focuses a lot on criminal justice, um, things like that. And so uh, he's got, yeah, it's going to be a it's going to be a solid. They're both very good candidates. You know, it's going to be a, a solid primary. Um, but if he wins that, then he'll be facing uh, Congressman Dan Bishop, most likely. He's got a primary, too. But uh, he's likely to win. So uh, he will face Congressman Greg Bishop, who is, uh, you know, election denier and uh, calling for national abortion bans and stuff like that. So it's going to be uh, another reason I think North Carolina is such a big deal politically is that the choices are going to be so stark. Um, Republicans are going to nominate a very far right uh, person, most likely to be governor. Uh, so Josh Stein will go up against Mark Robinson, uh, and um, whoever wins the Democratic primary for Attorney General will go up against Greg Bishop. And those are going to be really, really stark differences in clear choices for people in these really important roles. Well, you know that's really interesting because what we've seen here in Illinois, uh, in our state legislature, is. Um, quote unquote, if not moderate Republicans, at least Republicans who in the past were willing to work across the aisle to get things done. And almost each and every one of those, quote unquote, middle of the road Republicans got primaried and a much more radical, much more far right candidate uh, took home uh, the nomination. Is that kind of what you're seeing in North Carolina? Uh, yes, I suppose, except uh, this momentum isn't new here. Um, there there are moderate Republicans, obviously, obviously, uh, but they are quieter. And, yeah, the number the number of far right is growing. But again, the Republicans have a supermajority, and so they don't really have to worry about it. Um, I mean, like I'll say that the 12 week abortion ban that they passed last year um I mean, they called that a compromise, but it, what what it really was was a compromise from the people between the people who wanted a ban at conception um, and someone who didn't, you know, Republican who Republicans who didn't, and so um, so yeah. I mean, I, I think the far right is certainly has a bigger hold on the on the legislature, but they uh, but it's a lot quieter. It's I think we talked about this before. It's it's smarter and quieter, and it's just, with the exception of Mark Robinson, not as uh, obviously uh, these things. And so a lot, of the, a lot of the damage that they do is hidden in legislation, um, uh, you know, something that could be overlooked uh, at first. And so they're kind of a much smarter, in my view, more dangerous. Yeah. Is your feel that North Carolina continues to be and will continue to be a 50-50 state, or do you feel it's a sliding in a red direction? Um, well, it depends on what uh, what uh, government entity you're talking about. Um, I think that the I think the the most telling thing is that the 
Republican-controlled legislature ever since Democrat uh, Roy Cooper was elected governor has been stealing power from uh, the governor's role and passing a lot of laws that transfer the power from the governor to the legislature. And they didn't stop that once it became clear that Mark Robinson was going to be the likely Republican nominee. So I think that, to me, tells me that they know Mark Robinson's probably going to lose the governorship. Um, And so that means that when there are big statewide elections that everyone's paying attention to, it's likely to be a 50-50 state. But in the legislature and Congress, until the maps get straightened out, it's going to be far right, far red anyway. And did I... Correct me if I'm wrong. When you were talking about all the various lawsuits that were brought uh, Mm -hmm. against these maps, did you say that it's likely that they're not all going to be decided until 2026? Well, that's yeah, that's the the next election after this one. Yeah, none of them are going to. I don't believe there's anything, you know, minus some sort of weird miracle intervention. I don't think there's anything that's going to stop these maps from going into effect. So. Congress, uh, the congressional delegation in North Carolina is going to go from a 7-7 split among Republicans and Democrats to like a, I don't know, 13-1, 14-2 kind of thing. Uh, 12-2, excuse me. 12-2. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be tight or it's going to be bad uh, in that sense. Um, I'd like to run through a couple of issues that I know that Cardinal and Pine has reported on. Um, the federal infrastructure money that is coming into your state. Talk about that, what it's doing and what effect it's having. Oh, it's, I mean, it's having a lot of effect. Yeah, I mean, North Carolina is one of the most rural uh, states in the nation. And they have, I forget the exact number, but it's uh, one of the highest percentages of rural residents. Um, and they've got a lot of problems in those areas. Uh, and the big, the big one is broadband. The, the lack of broadband connectivity, uh, high-speed internet, uh, is just widespread. And this is one thing that's kind of a good thing. It's a bipartisan. You know, everyone's finally getting on board with a bipartisan thing. It's gotten a lot of state money, and it's gotten a lot of federal money through the Biden implementation. Uh, you know, acts over the years. Um, so they're getting millions and millions in grants, and those grants are going directly to the communities. To build uh, to build out uh, broadband, um, and same with uh, fighting PFAS contamination. We just we we're one of the worst, most contaminated PFAS uh, states in the country. Um, we we talk so about getting, that all the time in the Chicago area yeah. too. Yeah, um, it's rough. <laughs> it's rough, and uh, people are getting uh, finally money is going to them, and it's really targeted to the. Uh, this is, I have to say to the, both the legislature, the state leadership, and um, the, the, the federal laws, uh, they are sending this money directly to the community, um, the communities and the towns to, to affect these. I was just in Maysville, North Carolina, which is one of the smallest little tiny towns uh, full of really good people, um, and they got, they got you know, a million-dollar grant to, uh, to fix their very heavily contaminated PFAS water. Uh, and so um, it's, it's a big deal. And it's, it's doing a lot of good. Do do the people of North Carolina associate those good things with Joe Biden? Um, I bet some of them do, and I bet some of them don't. Um, I will say this, though, that in these communities, I've been to several of them that have gotten this money, and politics has never come up 
Uh, the town, the, the the elected officials in the town, like they 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 thank they they thank both the Republicans in the general Leg- uh, assembly, and they thank uh, Joe Biden, and they, they 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 all they really care about is getting the problem solved, uh, and that has been like you know I spend most of my time in the general assembly, and then I'll go out to one of these towns, and I feel a lot better because the the, the raw anger uh, of politics that exists. Uh, in Raleigh, in the state house, they just don't exist, or at least not that I can see as easily. Um, and the people I'm talking to in these towns, they just want the problem solved. Mm. Yeah, well, you know that uh, sounds like a typical electorate. I mean, you know, the the yeah. low information voter, the I mean, even yeah. the people who care about the world we live in. I've, you know, I hear from people saying, "Oh, you know what, I." It just it's so depressing. I'll just think about it when the election's closer. And uh, so that's a it's a very human way to approach this. Michael, it has been a delight talking to you. I hope you will keep us surprised. Maybe we can uh, have another chat after the primary and see how things shook out. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. Oh, you are very welcome. Um, We are going to be in just a short period of time here, taking a break for news. And, um, you know, we are going to continue on talking about politics, um, of course, when we come right back after this. I do want to mention, uh, most of you who listen all the time, you probably have a sense of this. But even when I don't make a big deal about giving out the phone number, you know, like, you know, like when the Hochberg's here, you know, give out the phone number every five minutes. But whenever I'm talking to somebody, if you would like to join the conversation, I'd like to invite you to 773-763-9278. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am pleased to chat with uh, Devin Ombres, who's the Senior Director of Courts and Legal Policy at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Um, One of his areas of uh, specialization is on this whole debate about presidential immunity, something that we just can't seem to decide and leave in our rear view mirror. Devin, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, John. Thanks for having me back on. Periodically, I try to update the audience on exactly where each and every one of the legal actions uh, Donald Trump is involved in stand. And I did uh, briefly talk about the situation in D.C. and what was going on with this claim that has yet to be decided on whether or not uh, Donald Trump and by extension, maybe every president has complete and total and thorough immunity. Please uh, bring us up to speed on this. Sure. And, uh, I, you know, this was going back. It was argued a couple months ago at the D.C. Circuit Court where former President Trump's attorneys basically said that he could have political opponents assassinated with impunity. So if, <sighs> if we're framing it, that, that's what we're talking about here. So the, the, the district court or the, I'm sorry, the circuit court said, if you don't file a motion petition for cert by the 12th, 
this is going to be able to go ahead. Uh, now, explain again what a petition for cert is to um, uh, to your non legal interviewer. Is- <laughs> First, sure. It is asking the Supreme Court to review. Usually, the process is if a three-judge uh, panel at the circuit decides, then they get to do what's called an en banc review, which is every judge in the circuit. The circuit said, you need to seek a petition for cert, have the Supreme Court review this case, and we're going to skip en banc review because this is too important to continue slowing down. And they wrote a pretty watertight opinion. Um, Former President Trump sought petition for certiorari uh, and to stay the prosecution against him in D.C. The court gave Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, a week to respond. Jack Smith said, no, 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 I'm going to respond in two days which was incredible. It just shows his aggressive Mm -hmm. strategy and the importance of this case. And now uh, Donald Trump responded last week. The the case has been submitted to the court as to whether they're going to take up the case, whether it's going to be expedited, whether they're going to deny review. And if they deny review, uh, everything goes forward probably within 60 days. Okay. But my understanding was that there was some controversy um, over whether or not the judge, Judge Shuckton, could continue on with her court case while this was up in the air. Um, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the Court of Appeals said, you know, you want to you don't want to go right to the Supreme Court. You want to appeal to the full court. You know, God love you. Go ahead. Do it. But. But that means you're, you know, we're going to tell Judge Shuckton uh, to get this back on the calendar and to get going. And Donald Trump's lawyers were like, no, that's not fair. That's not fair. So who decides that? Who decides whether or not that's fair and whether or not it should be held up or whether or not it goes forward? Is that a Supreme Court thing? That that, that is the Supreme Court thing, because Judge, uh, the the circuit court judges said, Go to the Supreme Court. Get this settled. We're not going to bother with going to to on banc review. But if you do decide to go on banc, we're going to let this we're going to let this play out. So they kind of pushed uh, the Trump Trump's hand in making him go to the court, and that was part of his reply brief that he he set forth last week, saying, "No, no, 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 no. They were bad." smack them down say, bad circuit court judges, we need to go through en banc review. And if they push it back and we go en banc review, we're looking at another two to three month delay, at which point I would venture to guess that the entire district court would uphold the opinion of the, of the three-judge panel. You might get a couple of, of weird dissents in there, but then it would go to the Supreme Court and then the game would be over we would be looking at the Supreme Court taking this up, best-case scenario, the first week of October next year, or uh, of this year. They wouldn't have panned down a decision until well after uh, the elections, and that, that would be the ball game. So if the, if the court says that the cake is baked, I don't think that they would necessarily go that far. Um, and I think we're expecting some kind of answer from them this week, uh, good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, you know, I'm hoping that they won't accept cert. That they'll say that it'll. Uh, they'll say we agree with the circuit court decision. Um, but 
you know, if they do accept cert, certainly putting it on an incredibly expedited docket, uh, which they have been able to do in the past and hopefully they could do here. I've heard a lot of people say that, that that's the smart move is for the Supreme Court to distance itself in every way it possibly can from this whole proceeding. Um, because right now, um, you know, they're already viewed as a bunch of partisans. They're, um, the faith that people have in the Supreme Court is at an almost all-time low Despite the fact that they say that they don't pay attention to any of that, they obviously do. I mean, I don't see an upside for the Supreme Court here. Um, they, they, they completely support Donald Trump, and it just reinforces everybody's observation that they're just a bunch of partisan hacks. They go against Donald Trump and, you know... Uh, Katie, bar the door. Uh, I mean, they better hire private security. It seems like a lose-lose for the Supreme Court. Do you see it that way, or am I missing a big picture here? Very much a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of scenario. I guess to the security question, it's a good thing they already have security. Um, But the other aspect that we're forgetting about is Anderson v. Trump, which was argued a couple of weeks ago, which was the question of can he about in Chicago uh, and in, or, no, I'm sorry, here in Chicago, in Colorado, in other states, and it looks like it, it could be a pretty unanimous or an eight to one decision reinstating Trump back on the ballot in Colorado. And so, if you look at it at the, the court as a political actor with a little bit of give and a little bit of take, the court could come out eight to one, nine zero, putting him back on the ballot, but also look at this. And kind of, as you say, distance themselves from this opinion and say the district court, or I'm sorry, the district court got it right, the circuit court got it right, we're not going to take it up. Um, And then you would see that give and take and and purported balancing of the scales as an institution. So it, it could happen. There are at least three votes, by my count, saying they would want to take up cert. Uh, but, you know, the other the other five or six could deny cert and, and, as you say, distance themselves. And I think that would be a savvy political move. Um, I keep reading different actions uh, and different um, things that the Supreme Court is being asked to consider. And sometimes it seems these decisions can be made by a simple majority. And then other times... I've read, well, you know, this can't be 5-4, it has to be 6-3. Uh, maybe I don't understand, Evan, what I'm reading. Is a 5-4 majority able to to decide this one way or the other? Or does it take more? So you, you, you need four justices to accept to hear a case. And so if you get four to say, we need to weigh in on this, we need to have oral argument, we need to have it on the docket, then it goes on the docket and the process gets extended further. Um, And so, you know, all it takes, we have a 6-3 conservative to liberal majority on the court. All it takes is four of them to say, yes, let's hear the case. So, again, if they, they can put it on, 
if they do put it on, it should be done in a very expedited manner. A lot of briefing, a lot of legwork has already been put into the legal analysis of this. It's been going on for several months now. There's not a whole lot left to shake out. The wheat has already been separated from the chair at this point, and it's an, it's an opportunity for justices to weigh in on the issue of presidential immunity. But I, I think any rational person, be, it, be you conservative, be you progressive, be you somewhere in the middle, would say that the tact that Trump attorneys are taking, that a president can quite literally do anything, is the opposite of what the founders intended, because we do not have a divine right of kings in the United States. And they are effectively saying that any president shall be king for now and forever while they're serving in office, and they shall not be be able to uh, be held accountable for any illegal actions that they take in office. And that is just anathema to every single principle that America stands for. It seems to me that the three-judge panel in D.C., that their ruling was no, no, a thousand times no, hell no. Uh, they were uh, remarkably bold in their writing and seemed to be leaving no door, even a tiny bit ajar. Will that that emphatic ruling, does that, you know, does, does the Supreme Court go, oh, boy, that was a tough one now. They really painted us into a corner. Um, does, does that have an effect on them, do you think? I think it does, because they were incredibly persuasive in their opinion. And, uh, you know, people way smarter than me or Supreme Court litigators have said, called it a watertight opinion. And there was a lot of hemming and hawing because they were taking a long time to do it. But they got it right and they made it watertight so that there is very, very little, little room for the court to come in and try and bigfoot them and say, no, this is what we intended. And, you know, they they took some uh, originalist approaches, they took some textualist approaches, and they really shot down any, any of the arguments that you could be seen being made by the so-called originalists and the so-called textualists uh, that are on the court right now. So they, they did a great job of saying, no, 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 a thousand times no, oh, hell no, so, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, so um, do they can they take as much time as they want? Are they limited? You know, like a lot of times they'll be, um, you know, well, here's the ruling. You have 30 days to appeal. How many days before we have to know what the decision is? Oh, the beauty of the Supreme Court. They can take their sweet time. They can take no. as long as they want. But, uh, I mean, but but as we noted earlier, the, the court is political actors, and they do have an awareness of what's happening. And, you know, I think we expect a ruling one way or another relatively quickly. It's a question of whether, uh, you know, if, if they don't grant cert, fingers crossed, um, if, if the chief justice gives the dissenting justices time to write an opinion to say why they're dissenting. Every week, the court comes out with uh, a series of rulings on the motions docket, which is what this is, where they and, they, and the cert docket, where they, they say they grant cert, they deny cert, um, and they will sometimes, not often, write a dissent, 
We saw Justices Alito and, and Thomas write some dissents today complaining that uh, we need to be able to regarding uh, LGBTQ issues and uh, affirmative action issues. So if they want to write dissents, they should. They might be given an extra week or so, but I'm pretty sure Chief Justice Roberts wants to expedite this to get the court out of the spotlight because they have not been in the spotlight for very good reasons quite a bit recently. Okay, you just said the Chief Justice would like to expedite this. Um, I am no legal scholar. I am not an attorney. But from all the people I've talked to and all the things I've read, it seems like John Roberts' only power is to cajole. Uh, You know, he can't um, force, like he can't force Clarence Thomas to recuse from something that Clarence Thomas's wife could be involved in. When you say, you know, John Roberts wants this to move in a timely fashion, well, that sounds good to me, but does it mean anything? Well, if, if they if they end up denying cert, and, and you're absolutely right, um, if they end up denying cert, then the dissenting justices will say, we need time to write an dissenting opinion. And the chief justice can say, great. You have one week, and this is kind of going out next week um, because the chief justice is the chief administrator of the court, and he's the one that helps, you know, make the trains run on time, as it were. So if, if they do deny cert, it's, he will give – he could give the dissenting justices time, but, you know, he has some of that authority in his, to, to make the trains move along. It has been said that if he really if he really wanted to clamp down on Clarence Thomas, that John Roberts apparently has the power to decide who will and will not be allowed to write decisions or dissents. Like he could say, you know, uh, Clarence, no more writing for you unless you do unless you recuse yourself from this case that we all know involves your wife is do i uh, understand that right or no no the chief the chief appoints who writes the majority opinion and that's it so he can either take it upon himself he can appoint it to somebody else in the majority it just depends it's a, a lot of internal dynamics as to who writes what opinion but the the chief can't say you are prohibited from writing a dissent. You are prohibited from writing a concurrence. They they are all independent actors to a large degree who have a lot of independence uh, as to what gets put out publicly. But the chief is the chief administrator of the court. So there 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 are certain powers accrued to him, but he can't stop them from writing uh, opinions and doing things like that. But he can set timelines for uh for issuing rulings and issuing opinions and, and things of that that nature. For for a merits case, you're not you're going to see a lot less of that internecine fighting because they've already had oral arguments. They're going to allow the justices to do what they want to do for the most part. Okay, we have a we have a caller who has some um, questions. You made reference to originalists and contextualists. Uh, Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington, to talk more about that. Uh, go ahead, Paul. You're on with uh, Demer Ombres and me. Go ahead. Thank you. I, I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, you, know, you said the opinion, the appeals, the court opinion was 
somewhat designed to, I don't know, appease or somehow speak to the originalists and the textualists. And uh, as far as I know, textualism is not originalism. Originalism would be predisposed more to common law, wouldn't it? And all these ideas that Brett Kavanaugh and the, all the textualists say that we're originalists. But, I mean, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote a book in 1881 called The Common Law. And I think that's what our, our system is founded upon, because there wasn't a lot of textualism in our history or in, early, in the early times. Common law, so t- I'm saying is that t- textualism, if you're an originalist, you would see textualism through the lens of the common law. Isn't that, isn't that what originalism really would be? So original, uh, originalism, and I might have interposed the two words, and we're, we're getting into the, the nitty-gritty of, of legal technicalities here. Originalism is looking back at the words written in the, in the founding documents, the Federalist Papers, um, things like that, and saying, what is the original intent? What is the definitional intent? What is the common use of various phrases used back then? So that's a little bit of textualism there. The, the more common understanding of textualism is looking at uh, statutory authority, regulatory authority, things like that, and interpreting what the textualists mean there. So uh, you, you, you got me. I, I was uh, uh, kind of interposing the words where I probably should have been more exacting. But I, I think a lot See, Devin, of See, Devin, you just thought you were dealing with a first. reasonably ignorant host, which is true. <laughs> you didn't realize that my listeners are a lot better educated and smarter than I am. I make that mistake all the time. <laughs> well, fair. I just, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just thought that textualism in terms of our statutory, you know, especially in early before the founding of our country, common law was what, what English common law was. There wasn't legislatures that were pouring out all kinds of, you know, te- uh, statutory texts text in the days. And, you know, it even refers to the Seventh Amendment, even refers to... You know, in suit the common law, uh, you know, the, the right to jury, a jury trial will be preserved pretty much as to what it was under common law. So it even refers to that. So you're going to make me get in the way back machine because I believe <laughs> it was there, there was a recent case uh, where I believe our Alito was arguing very strenuously regarding the Second Amendment and going back to pre. Uh, pre-constitutional English laws uh, and uh, referencing what was reasonable uh, regarding the right to bear arms, and he was looking to Blackstone, which is a pre uh, a pre-constitutional English authority on what constitutes various a- aspects of uh, English statutory authority and English common law. So I mean, like they're they're literally diving back into the early 17, late 1600s to try and reach some of their conclusions uh, in these things regarding constitutional amendments. So I mean, we can we can argue the niceties of of what the definitional aspects of these are, um, but the fact of the matter is that the circuit court wrote an incredibly comprehensive opinion to prevent the likes of Thomas and the likes of Alito who use their textualism and their originalism and in both contexts of the words to reach the policy outcomes that they want. Um, and I think the, the 
circuit court did a great job in saying, no, 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 a thousand times no. If you look at it from an originalist context of what the founders intended, they would in no way, shape, or form ever think that a president can be immune from anything. And if you look at the text of the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, they would say, oh, hell no, the president cannot be held immune from any criminal activities we did because we are not pre-revolutionary France. We're les états c'est moi, and we are not pre-constitutional England where there is a divine right, I'm sorry, pre-Magna Carta, divine right of kings. We are more evolved than that. This came, the founding documents came through enlightenment thinking where they realized that laws applied to everybody, no matter how high or low. And at the end of the day, Trump's statement is, I am the state. I have the divine right of kings. You can never hold me accountable for anything that I have ever done at any time. That's been his arguments in the civil cases. It has been his arguments in the criminal cases. He argued during impeachment that you can prosecute me. Now he's arguing during prosecution. No, you had to impeach me first. He is stating the divine right of kings. And my favorite part, Devin, was when he made that one public statement. And he said, you know, Devin, you may not know this. He's not doing it for himself. He's doing it even for Joe Biden and for every president who is going to come after him. Because presidents will be crippled. They will be paralyzed. They will be unable to act if they have to live with the fear that eventually they'll be prosecuted. Did you did you know how altruistic this was, Devin? He is a man who gives with his whole heart. <laughs> he is a man who is dedicated to charity. Um, and we managed to make it 230 years without prosecuting a president for crimes committed during their, uh, their, their term. But we also made it 234 years before somebody decided that they wanted to overturn our constitutional republic. And yeah. that's what he did on, in the months following the November 2020 election. Yes, he did. Didn't he? Uh, Devin, thank you for joining us. I, I also, we're, we're out of time. I'm going to have to have you back because I wanted to talk about some of the other things that the Supreme Court is thinking about, like, you know, eviscerating our entire bureaucratic structure. <clears throat> but that particular hurricane is going to have to wait for another day. Um, thank you, Devin. Always a pleasure, Joan. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the fact that I know you had a tricky family situation today and you still made this work. And I thank your daughters for being so understanding. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm shuffling between piano lessons as we speak. So thank you so okay. much for understanding. All righty. Um, we are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Now on WCPT 820. As you know from listening to this show, I love to talk to people who write interesting political books. Well, there's a book, America Last. The Right's century-long romance with foreign dictators that seems particularly pertinent 
to the world we're living in right now. Uh, the author of that book, Jacob Heilbronn, joins us. He's also editor of the National Interest and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Jacob, thank you so much for being here. Delighted to be here. So, um, century-long romance with foreign dictators? Um, are you talking about... Uh, all the countries of the world of their conservative movements, or are you are you talking about here in the United States? The conservative movement here has in this country has it had a century long romance with foreign dictators? It has indeed, and when I began researching this book, I quickly realized that it began in all places with Imperial Germany in 1914, when it went to war against Great Britain and France. And I discovered that a number of leading conservatives in America actually argued that we should be supporting not democratic Great Britain, but autocratic Germany or Prussia. And this might seem like a a simple curiosity, a historical artifact. But it turns out that many of the arguments that people such as H.L. Mencken, who was a founder of conservatism in America, used at the time have been duplicated generation after generation by American conservatives. And the same arguments that Mencken made for, for World War I and then for World War II are being deployed today by Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump which is that they argue the United States should not side with democracies. Instead, we should look to autocracies like Hungary or Russia as models for the United States, that we, in fact, need to impose an authoritarian system right here in the good old USA. But why? Especially not somebody like Mencken, who, uh, you know, it's not like this is a guy who um, was treated badly because of his race or was, um, you know, um, had to rise up against an unjust system. I mean, it would seem to me that this was a guy who benefited in every way, shape or form from democracy. What on earth makes somebody say, um you know, no, you know, no, not power to the people. It's just better have a dictator and then just, what, sit back and enjoy life? Well, Mencken had contempt for the American mob. And if you look at his writings, he explicitly declared he viewed himself as a kind of intellectual aristocrat who was superior to the common man. He had contempt for democracy He thought that it resulted in mediocrity and that the Prussian system, he himself was of German ancestry, that the Prussian authoritarian military caste and the Prussian bureaucracy were far superior to anything that America could produce. And in fact, in 1917, he wrote an essay for The Atlantic, which ended up not being published because they thought it would be treasonous. He actually called for Prussia to conquer the United States. Now, these arguments morphed in the 1930s into the America First movement, which was led by Charles Lindbergh 
and former President Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover met with Adolf Hitler in Berlin in 1938, a week before the annexation of Austria, and declared that it would be a good thing if Nazis were, were in control of Central Europe because they would impose order. And in 1940, he denounced Franklin Roosevelt for criticizing the Nazi regime. So you have a huge wave of sympathizers between in the late 1930s and early 1940s of people who either are sympathetic to fascism or even want to impose it in the United States. Going back to H.L. Mencken, would I be correct in assuming that he felt that he should be one of those in charge in this new world order because he was just so educated and so bright and so capable of making these decisions that got too messy when they were left up to democracy? I don't know if Mencken envisioned himself in power. He, he certainly would have... Uh, he was more of a critic than someone who who had the ability to serve in government. But he did think that some kind of a military regime in the United States would be superior to, and he called it, and I talk about this in my book, America Last, I say he called it, quote, an intelligent fascism, unquote. So a lot of these people were deluding themselves at the same time. The idea that you can have an intelligent fascism just doesn't add up. Mencken never talked about the Holocaust after World War II. He just retreated. He didn't want to face up to the consequences of what had happened in, in Nazi Germany. So he never um, continued espousing his ideas, he, either saying, I was right, but this particular situation didn't work out right, or, or God forbid, you know, I might have gotten this wrong. Just nothing. I don't. I don't think he he ever acknowledged that he was wrong. He was, he was, as we know from the diaries that were released in the late 1980s. He was an ardent anti-Semite, and he was a racist. And those views never changed. And many of the people, some of the other people I talk about in my book, like General George Van Horn Mosley, also a prominent racist and anti-Semite, who testified before Congress. Uh, stating that any Jews who were emigrating to America from Nazi Germany should immediately be sterilized when they landed on our shores. And he, too, called for a fascist regime in the United States. There were a lot of people in the, in the late 1930s in the, on the right who shared these views. And I don't think they ever shed them, but some of them may have muted them after World War II. So these arguments in favor of fascism from the 1914s, from the 1930s, um, some would say to today. Are you saying that a lot of it is rooted in uh, discrimination, in racism, in anti-Semitism? Um, we've got to get control of this, we being, of course, the white Christians of the world, because otherwise these quote-unquote vermin will disrupt everything? That certainly looks to be the case. Politico, for example, has a piece today about how conservatives around Trump 
are dreaming up how to establish what they call Christian nationalism in the Trump administration, and that even immigrants will no longer be judged on whether they're are, are born in this country, but they will be judged or whether they wanted to travel here, but they will be judged on their religious affiliation. Are they, do they believe in Christianity as defined by the Trump administration, as would be defined by Trump administration? It's a completely different conception of America than the one that we have enjoyed over much of the past century. Um, well, I can remember Mike Flynn, the uh, guy who was fired from the Obama administration and elevated in the Trump administration. Um, he said a couple of years ago uh, to a reporter, and he seemed what struck me is this wasn't, you know, a bombastic political speech. He seemed genuinely puzzled. He looked at the reporter and he said, I don't understand why we can't be um, a country of one religion. I don't understand why we can't be a Christian country. And I thought to myself, this guy was a leader of a diverse military. This guy was involved in government, and he he was genuinely puzzled as to why we couldn't simply be a Christian nation, why that just couldn't be the state religion. Definitely. I mean, that's what they believe, and it's inimical to what the founding fathers uh, believed, but they want to recreate America in their own image. And Michael Flynn would probably return in a high position in the Trump administration, either as a national security advisor or even head of the CIA. I want to go back to something you said uh, during uh, the build-up to World War II, one of the arguments uh, for Hitler taking over in Central Europe was that he would impose order. Was there a lot of disorder? Was there rioting in the streets? What was the disorder that needed to be stamped out? I don't think there was rioting in the streets, but the idea was that you had all these small nations that had emerged after World War One, and as a consequence of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. This is something that Woodrow Wilson, with his idea of self-determination of nations, had helped to encourage. And a lot of the borders were, were arbitrarily drawn up, and nations like Hungary wanted slices of Romania, so that this in Poland wanted wanted to take a slice out of Czechoslovakia. So there were all kind. There was instability, geopolitical instability. And Hoover would have seen Germany as a nation that could ensure stability the same way that Donald Trump today believes that Russia should control Ukraine and most likely would be happy to see the Baltic states under the um, back returned to Russia so that the United States wouldn't have to deal with any of these issues. It could just leave and allow Russia to have superiority in the region. As we see in the current state right now, this um, flirtation with fascism, 
one of the things that we talk about on this radio show is, especially as we get close to the next election, what is the role played by the media? Many people are more and more voices every day are starting to be hypercritical of the New York Times. One person I read this morning said that they felt that when about, you know, bringing the downfall of democracy, that the New York Times was almost more at, would be more at fault than the Republican Party or Donald Trump because of the way they keep softening the conversations and they keep uh, papering over of the big divisions here in the 1910s, in the 1930s. Did the media and how they reported on events play a role? No, I don't think that the media was as concerned about being accused of bias back then. And they, they bluntly reported what was happening. Today on CNN, one of its correspondents referred to Donald Trump's, quote, inflammatory statements instead of simply saying they're outlandish or crazy. So the softening that you're talking about is constantly occurring because they try to draw an equation between Biden and Trump. The New York Times, in another piece, referred to a howler by Donald Trump, similar to the one that Biden had made. Well, Biden didn't actually make a howler. He made a, he made a small mistake. But, by, but Trump saying that the Russians should do whatever the hell they want to NATO countries epically surpasses anything that Biden has said. One of the former journalists who I have on this program has been posting on social media. She's been keeping an eye on uh, the number of stories and especially, I have to say, with not the Washington Post to some degree, but to a much greater degree of the New York Times. And she was like, OK, yesterday there were, you know, five stories on the front page about Biden's age. And there was one story about Trump's comments about NATO. And she does this day after day. And it's really eye opening um, to see on a daily basis, the 80 stories um, against Biden um, doing X and 15 stories about Trump doing X. I mean, what's going on? I mean, you would think that, you know, we know that fascists, one of the first thing they do is they go after journalists. Donald Trump has already said that when he gets back in the presidency, he is going to charge NBC and MSNBC with treason. I mean, how could a news organization be behaving in a way that makes these bad outcomes more likely? You know what I'm saying? And it's not a question of truth versus untruth. It's not like the New York Times is publishing lies, but they are definitely by the preponderance of what they write, by the headlines that they write and what they choose to cover, they are having a huge influence. And I, it seems to me a self-destructive influence. What's your observation? The conservative movement over the past decades has become very adept at working the refs. And so there is, in the part of these big news organizations, an internal governor, as it were, 
and they're constantly trying to avoid being attacked by the right or creating or creating a controversy. The problem with it is that in this quest for objectivity, they end up writing things that don't always correspond to the truth. If you if you say if you tone down like you were saying what Trump is saying, then you're actually not reporting objective reality, except that's where we appear to be. You mentioned during World War Two, and I, this is <laughs> despite what is I'm sure you're thinking my apparent real lack of uh, an education about history, and I acknowledge that is definitely true. Even I was aware that Charles Lindbergh, you know, the beloved aviator, was somebody who was really uh, trying to keep us completely out of anything um, that was going on in Europe, wanted us to, uh, you know, acquiesce to what was going on, and certainly not get involved. He was very famous. He was beloved. Uh, and yet, in the end, his opinions did not carry the day. Do we lay that solely at the feet of FDR? Um, or why else did those opinions not carry the day? FDR and his cabinet officials, like his Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes, performed heroically in those years. And the Roosevelt administration went directly by name after these fascists. These are people, names that we're not familiar with today. But at the time, they would testify before Congress. They were journalists, intellectuals, and politicians. And they were high profile at the time. And Roosevelt's Attorney General Robert Jackson also delivered a a speech that's well-known called Democracy Under Fire, in which he singled out the threat of fascism, not abroad, but in the United States. So you would have to have the Biden, if the Biden administration could emulate that, they could directly start targeting people and giving speeches about the dangers and the ideas posed by not only Trump, but also the people around him, including his immigration guru, Stephen Miller, who apparently wants to establish mass concentration camps on the southern border, housing immigrants, illegal immigrants, and in maybe some legal ones that they scoop up in American cities. They're also talking about using sending in the National Guard from red states into blue states to track down people. So we could face a kind of emergency situation if Trump were reelected. Oh, my God. I, I shudder to think, especially since he, you know, the the bureaucracy that maybe was able to mute some of what he was trying to do last time around. He's figured that out. And I mean, he said that I'm not only going to get rid of all of Biden's political appointees, but I'm going to get rid of the entire civil service. And he has said quite clearly the main quality that I will look in. At resumes, the the main quality I want in the replacements is loyalty to me. And you you talked about how uh, the Department of Justice came out very strongly. Is that normal? Because honestly, 
I can't see Merrick Garland taking on that kind of uh, job, that kind of responsibility. No, in fact, Garland has dragged his feet on prosecuting anyone related to January 6th. This is totally abnormal. The blunt truth is Donald Trump is a megalomaniac. Anyone who supports him has to know at this point what that support translates into. It does not support American democracy or the rule of law, above all, is not something that Trump is interested in supporting. He wants to bring it down for his own purposes. In the past, these movements that you've um, studied where the right was trying to bring about fascism or promoting fascism, what I see especially on Capitol Hill, is people that don't necessarily agree with the idea of dismantling our democracy, but who feel just terrified to say or do anything about it. I mean, Mike Johnson said there's going to be no aid for Ukraine unless there are measures for the border. And so they got measures for the border. But Donald Trump apparently didn't want that, didn't want any kind of vote on anything um, so that he could use it as a talking point. And so then they pulled the rug out from under it. And then when the when the bill was brought with just funding for Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan, Mike Johnson said he couldn't do it because there were no measures for the border. Uh, uh, were lawmakers in the in the 30s as terrified to do the right thing as they seem to be now? No, there wasn't an outside figure like Donald Trump who controlled the re- a huge swath of the Republican Party. Instead, there were senators, and then there was the America First Committee that whipped up the heartland. But there were there were also a strong Republican establishment. So the party was divided. And in 1940, they nominated Wendell Wilkie, who was an internationalist, to campaign against Franklin Roosevelt for the presidency. The Republican Party has long been a house divided. What's really occurred is that this far-right faction, after decades of working at it, has finally stormed the ramparts. The old establishment is out on the outs, and the fringe controls the party. Do you feel optimism for the near future in this country? I do, because my conviction is that as grim as things may look, what Trump is peddling is old wine and new bottles, and I don't think it's very attractive. If we were in a depression or a severe recession, I would be more worried. But Trump himself is becoming increasingly strident. They're talking now about banning birth control in Alabama. The court just ruled that IVF constitutes a a child. They're trying to, someone dropped some IVF. Uh, and 
they're they're claiming that that they're claiming that that was tantamount to to murder. Uh, the extremism of the Republican Party is going to be its undoing. I don't think that Donald Trump has an auspicious future before him. Oh, my God, Jacob, I think you're right. And I think we should all pick up your book, America Last, the right's century-long romance with foreign dictators. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jacob Halbrin, for being here today. Thank you very much. It's been great. Um, that's going to do it for me. Driving at Home with Pate Vasquez is up next. Richard Chu will be here tomorrow at 6 a.m. I will see you tomorrow at 2. Isn't it nice we can, when we can end on an optimistic note? I know. I wish, I'm sure you wish we did that more often here. I'll work on it, okay? I'll work on it. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great evening. Good night. <laughs>